Hello, and welcome to Black Hat Japan. Uh, we're about ready to get started here. I'd like to introduce Chris Hurley and his presentation on identifying and responding to wireless attacks. Thank you. Thank you. I'd like to start off by saying that I'm very happy to be here today. Um, this is the first time I've been to Japan, and the opportunity was great. I'd like to thank Black Hat for inviting me. I'd like to thank you all for coming. Um, what we want to do today is discuss uh, wireless attacks from basically the, uh, the history of how wireless attacks started a few years ago up to now where you see some of the more advanced attacks that are taking place. Uh, the goal being to learn how to identify those attacks and hopefully respond to them in, in real time where uh, applicable. Um, a little bit of background on myself. I am a penetration tester in the Washington, D.C. area in the United States, which basically my job is to um, go through client networks and uh, be the bad guy for a while and essentially try to gain access to their networks and identify the vulnerabilities that may be there. Uh, one portion of that, obviously, is wireless. In the United States especially, you've seen a vast um, increase in the number of wireless networks over the course of the past three or four years. Um, another thing that I have done is a project called the Worldwide War Drive. And the goal of the Worldwide War Drive was to identify uh, as many wireless networks as we could throughout, actually, not just the United States, but throughout the world. Uh, it was a four-year project that we wanted to basically determine a statistical analysis of where wireless was being deployed, how much wireless was being deployed, and the security state of those wireless networks. Uh, we had some very interesting results. We had uh, some really good participation from particularly North America. The uh, Asian side, we had some participation in Korea, and in our last iteration uh, about a year ago, we actually had one person who, who participated here in Japan and Tokyo as well. Um, the results of that, since there was only one person, only a few networks aren't really statistically viable. However, I'm sure you guys all know that there is wireless here in Japan, and you've seen the state of those networks and whether or not they're secure. Um, basically, like I said, I want to give a brief history of the uh, of wireless security and particularly the, the different types of attacks that have come about with wireless networks. Um, and then kind of delve into those a little bit uh, with the attacks against WEP. You will still see WEP used more often than it should be. Um, the attacks against WPA, which were a little bit more advanced and a little harder to detect. Um, man in the middle attacks, which recently in particular have really started to gain some momentum uh, as people have found that the networks are more secure and that people are using encryption rather than actually attempt to break the encryption and get called that way, they started to become a man in the middle or an evil twin of the, one of the authorized wireless networks. And then for each of those, we want to talk about uh, first identifying those, how you as an administrator or a security administrator or an administrator of a wireless network can realize that one of these attacks is taking place. Also, how you can respond to those attacks, hopefully in real time. 
one thing I do want to mention that any of the screenshots that are on uh, these slides, and there are several of them, are from uh, packet capture dumps that I did for when I actually tried each one of the attacks. Uh, all of the screenshots are on the Black Hat CD that was provided to you in your delegate bag. Also, the uh, the raw packet dumps that I used, they're all in PCAP format, so any uh, traffic analyzer that you have, you can open those up and actually take a look at the attacks yourself and see if you can identify where the attack took place and what was going on. Um, basically, WEP was the original security mechanism that was developed for 802.11 networks. One thing to understand about the 802.11 standard is it was developed without security in mind. It was uh, always developed to be an open standard. Uh, security came as an afterthought. And as you know, whenever you develop security, as an afterthought, it is not going to be as strong as if security is built in when it's originally developed. Um, uh, Scott Fleur, Itzhak Manton, and Adi Shamir actually discovered that WEP was flawed in a paper that they did called Weaknesses in the Key Scheduling Algorithm of RC4. Um, also, if you want to actually download the paper, I don't know of a Japanese translation, but an English version of the paper is available uh, on the web, and in your slides, if you look into the, in the notes section, you'll actually have the link for that, and whenever there's any links, those are all also listed in the uh, notes section of the slides. Um, basically, what they found was that uh, these attacks have actually become known as the FMS attacks, based on the first uh, letter of each of their last names. Um, and shortly after their uh, paper was released, there were several tools released that actually automated the process for people. The attack itself can be very complex, and so people wanted to, in order to test the security of their own networks as well as what the bad guys were using, they wanted to have an automated way to do this. Um, WebCrack was probably the first that was released, and then AirSnort was very nice because WebCrack was an offline attack. You had to capture with a different program and then run WebCrack against your capture, whereas AirSnort gave uh, an attacker or an auditor the ability to capture the packets in real time and then incorporated WebCrack to actually accomplish the attack. Um, there were actually a ton of other tools developed, but these were the two that were most commonly used, um, and they were also the most effective at the time that they were released. Um, in response to the weaknesses in WEP, some new security mechanisms were developed. Cisco developed the Lightweight Extensible Authentication Protocol, or LEAP, um, and then there was an idea from the Wi-Fi Alliance to develop something called Wi-Fi Protected Access, or WPA. It was developed to replace WEP, and there were two flavors that were developed. One thing, uh, a couple of problems with these, LEAP was developed as a uh, Cisco proprietary solution. So if you did not have Cisco products deployed uh, or something that was compatible with them, you were unable to actually deploy LEAP. Um, and WPA was, and actually often still is outside of the Windows world, difficult to implement and deploy. Um, it was developed in two distinct flavors. One of them, uh, PSK, or a pre-shared key, and the second was uh, WPA in conjunction with RADIUS. There are also a couple of different um, encryption mechanisms that you can use, TKIP or uh, AES. 
in March of 2003, Joshua Wright, an American security researcher, disclosed that Leap was vulnerable to a dictionary attack. Um, a short time later, Wright released the Asleep tool, uh, which was an automated tool uh, to actually do a Leap attack, and we'll kind of talk about that a little bit later. Um, one of the things that's interesting to note is that Cisco was apparently aware of her vulnerability before Wright's public disclosure. Um, another thing about Asleep is that it's only effective when it's used in conjunction with an extensive word list or dictionary file, and even then the results can vary. You may, you'll find sometimes it is extremely effective, and other times even though you've uh, successfully captured the handshake, it does not work. Um, Asleep is still available for download, and uh, the link is in your slides. Um, in November of 2003, just a, a few months after Wright's disclosure, uh, Robert Moskowitz of ISCA Labs uh, detailed that there were also potentially problems with WPA when it was deployed using uh, the pre-shared key method. Uh, he detailed this in his paper, Weaknesses in the Passphrase Choices uh, Choice in the WPA Interface. One thing to note about, Mos uh, about Moskowitz's discovery was that this was only um, after applicable when WPAPSK was deployed with a, a passphrase that was number one, shorter than 21 characters, and number two, uh, a dictionary word or combination of dictionary letters. Uh, get, we'll discuss that and the implications of that a little bit more later. In November of 2004, Joshua Wright, the same individual that released the Asleep tool, released a tool called CalPatty. And as you can see, the WPA is uh, capitalized in that. That was because it was a tool that would actually automate the dictionary attack process that was detailed by Moskowitz and allowed uh, either an attacker or an auditor to uh, automatically accomplish one of these attacks. Um, one thing to note about uh, CalPatty is that, again, it was an automated dictionary attack process, and um, a lot of press, particularly at the time, was generated about the WPAPSK weakness. Um, you got some level of the sky is falling, Wi-Fi will never be secure, it's not possible to do. The thing is that the WPA attack, whether through CalPatty or through a different application, is actually very difficult to uh, accomplish. And more than that, it is not very, um, I, I don't want to say it's not effective, but it's you can't determine whether it's going to work every single time. Um, even the reason for that is that for each dictionary word that you want to run the attack against or run your attack with, um, Actually, 4,096 iterations of uh, the it has to be run against the uh, dictionary attack of the HMACSHI-1, as well as two nonce values and the supplicant and authenticator MAC addresses. So by the time that all that is actually accomplished, there's a lot of room for things to fall out of the, of the uh, process. You, I've tried this attack myself several hundred times, and I would say that even when I know the dictionary words in there when I'm doing it in a controlled test lab environment, I'd still say that my effectiveness is only somewhere in the neighborhood of about 70%.
Um, despite cries to the contrary, at this time, WEP was actually still a relatively safe uh, algorithm to use in some environments. By some environments, I mean uh, low traffic networks, home networks, anything where you weren't going to have an extensive number of uh, packets generated on the wireless network. One of the reasons was that cracking WEP was so time-consuming that it was often not feasible for an attacker to do it, uh, particularly when about at this time about 75% of wireless networks that were deployed were deployed with no security mechanisms in place whatsoever. Why would an attacker spend the weeks and in some cases months that it would take to crack your WEP key when they could drive uh, half a block down the street and use someone else's network? Um, regular rotation of the web keys would also render most FMS attacks ineffective on most networks. The reason for that is that FMS attacks require the collection of unique initialization vectors and they have to be weak initialization vectors. Um, one of the things that was done at this time once the um, word got out that there was this flaw within web was that most manufacturers released firmware updates for both the client and the ac and the network, the access point hardware that would reduce the number of weak initialization vectors that were generated. After the release of the FMS paper, um, Hikari of the Doc Burden Labs released a paper that detailed a way to more effectively crack web keys. Uh, in 2004, a bunch of new tools that were based on this, call, uh, and this attack was called was dubbed chopping, were released. Um, Shopping attacks basically take a wet packet and chop off the last byte or remove the last byte from the from the packet. And this breaks the CRC ICV. Um, if the last byte was zero, they would then it would then XOR the last four bytes with a certain value to make a valid CRC. And then the packet was retransmitted into the network. Uh, what this did was basically allow the, an attacker who was not authenticated to the network the ability to create new packets. Additionally, chopping attacks ended the need for weak initialization vectors and made it so that only unique initialization vectors had to be collected. Um, one thing that, to note is that on the CD, in, the, in my directory, there's a program called chop.c. That is a C program that you can compile that is a proof of concept of the chopping attack. This attack methodology significantly reduced the amount of time that was required to crack web keys. It also made what was at the time largely a theoretical attack because of the number of unique or the number of weak IVs that had to be collected and the amount of time it would take to do that. It made these attacks realistic. Uh, shortly thereafter, several tools were released. The most effective of which, still to this day, is probably Aircrack. Aircrack has uh, somewhere in the neighborhood of about a 95 to 98% effectiveness rate. WebLab is another tool that uses the exact same methodology and in my personal uh, experience is a little bit less effective than Aircraft. Part of that could be due to user error because it is a much more difficult and less user-friendly product to use.
so that brings us to now. Um, basically, we have three questions that we need to ask ourselves. Number one, can wireless networks be deployed securely in a corporate environment? Number two, is wireless intrusion detection a viable process? And number three, can attacks against wireless networks be observed and, and more importantly, reacted to in real time? In my opinion, the answer to all three of these questions is yes. Um, and hopefully, through the rest of this presentation, we'll be able to demonstrate why I believe that. First, let's talk about attacks against web. Even with chopping attacks, a large number of packets are still required uh, by an attacker. He has to capture these packets before he can begin to do the attack. Generally, you need somewhere in the neighborhood of 500,000 um, unique initialization vectors to have about a 60% shot at correctly uh, cracking the web key. Uh, obviously, the more unique initialization vectors you have, the more uh, likely your attack is to succeed. The easiest way to generate these is by uh, re-injecting packets back into the network. As you've all probably seen, most wireless networks are not used extensively. Even though an organization may employ a wireless architecture, their primary architecture is still a wired network, and the wireless network is used sporadically at best, or if it's used all the time, it is used by a very small number of users. Obviously, there are exceptions to that rule. Um, what we've got here is a packet capture of normal web encrypted traffic. As you can see here, we have beacon frames that broadcast the SSID. You can see that no SSID is listed on those. The reason for that is that it was initially set up as a uh, cloaked network. However, with wireless cards that are utilized in uh, RF mon or monitor mode, you can actually take a look at the packet itself and discover that in this case, the SSID of the network was Roma. That was actually my network, shockingly enough. Um, you also see a lot of normal traffic in these. You'll see uh, the ICMP, the TCP, and the UDP traffic, depending on what is the normal uh, flow of network for your or flow of traffic for your network. Once you determine the SSID, an attacker's job is a little bit easier. Unfortunately, what you started to see about this time were that people were relying on the security by security methodology of uh, cloaking their access point and thinking that an attacker would not be able to determine what their access point uh, what their SSID was. This was obviously not the case and some organizations actually found this out the hard way. Um, here you see that what an attacker needs to do is to generate an ARP packet. The easiest way uh, for an attacker to do this is to deauthenticate the clients that are currently associated from the network when that client 
re-authenticates to the network, uh, an ARP packet is usually generated. Um, so what you want to be on the lookout for, obviously, are these de-authentication frames. These aren't things that you're going to see regularly as, as a, in large quantity in your in your traffic analysis. One thing that you will allow you to quickly uh, note, note a deauthentication packet, if you're using a packet sniffer such as Ethereal, it'll actually give you in the info, it will say deauthentication. If you're using a different sniffer product or you aren't uh, able to get the deauthentication info, C0 will be the first byte in the ASCII dump of a deauthentication frame every time. One thing to note here is that an attacker will continue his deauthentication flood until at least one ARC packet is generated and he's able to capture it. Um, because of this, you can sometimes quickly identify this traffic uh, on your network before the attacker has the opportunity to actually capture that ARC packet and then turn around to re-inject it. Uh, during an authentication for uh, wireless sniffers such as Kismac or Kismet, Kismac is shown here, uh, will show any clients that have been disassociated from the network uh, probing to find the network again. And here you'll see this is a client that was connected to the network and is now probing to reconnect to the network. If you correlate that with your sniffer log, you'll actually see that this does correlate to the time of the deauthentication. Also, likely you will know the MAC addresses of the allowed clients that are uh, able to connect to your network. One thing that is good to note is that most wireless IDS products that are currently on the market can easily identify this type of behavior. Once an attacker has successfully captured the network packet, his next step is going to be to re-inject that packet back into the network. Uh, this will generate packets as well as the initialization vectors that are the all-important piece of the ability to crack the web key. Uh, during the re-injection, you're going to see an abundance of ARP packets. You can see here, you have the discovery protocol followed by a whole string of ARP packets, one after the other. <laughs> this is not traffic that you are generally going to see on your network. It should be anomalous, and you should be able to quickly identify that this is not something that should be going on. The reason, the reason being that, obviously, if an attacker had to deauthenticate in order to generate that one ARP packet that he needs, it's not something that is common on the network. You're going to see it at authentication, and you're going to see it at deauthentication, and, and, and then the subsequent reauthentication. So how do we respond to attacks against web? Um, the first thing is a deauthentication block. Uh, you can have mechanisms in place to immediately alert any administrators, uh, or alert administrators that any deauthentication packets have been identified. Again, this is not traffic that is going to be normal on your network, or at least not in abundance. 
Um, the next thing would be to block the MAC address of the, uh, the WLAN adapter that is sending the, uh, the, the, the authentication frames. If it's a legitimate user's MAC address that has been spoofed in order to uh, re-inject these packets or to de-authenticate, then uh, you can make the block temporary until the attack has ended. You should be prepared to block several MAC addresses. Um, an attacker that has targeted you as his uh, particular target is likely not going to be thwarted by the blocking of one single MAC address. It's very easy to spoof a MAC address. It's probably the most simplistic attack against wireless networks or against any network for that matter. Um, and attackers know how to do this. So your administrators and, and your security administrators are going to have to be vigilant uh, during the time the attack is actually taking place. Another thing to take a look at is an ARP injection block. As I mentioned, ARP injection is easy to identify. Um, as an administrator of a network or a security administrator of a network, it's your job to understand what normal traffic looks like on your network. Uh, depending on the size and scope of your network, obviously you're going to probably want to employ some automated tools to assist you in this task. But once you understand what normal traffic looks like on your network, detecting an anomalous bit of traffic is going to be relatively easy for you to accomplish. While an attack is going on, one thing that you can do as an administrator is to rotate the web key. As if an attacker is able to uh, start to re-inject traffic into your network, if you are rotating the key either once or multiple times while the attack is going on and you have a mechanism in place to automatically rotate that key on the clients as well, then it's going to make it relatively easy for you to thwart the attacker. He will have a bunch of initialization vectors, unique initialization vectors for multiple different web keys which his cracking program will not be able to assemble and figure out which one is which and it will take a, a long period of time and in all likelihood he will, unless you are a target that he is specifically targeted and is going to be vigilant on, he's probably going to give up on that attack. If the attacker does not give up on the attack, you do have one last resort, and that is basically to perform a denial of service on yourself and shut down the WLAN until such time as the attack has ended. During the time that you shut down your WLAN, you should definitely uh, explore alternative means of securing your network because this attacker has you in mind, and as long as you are using WEP, he is going to continue to go against or to attack this known vulnerable encryption mechanism. Next is attacks against WPA. Uh, WPA with pre-shared keys, as I mentioned, and passphrases that are shorter than 21 characters are vulnerable to dictionary attacks. Um, one of the things to note is that attacks against WPA are offline attacks and they are not as easy to identify in real time as attacks against web.
in order to successfully crack the WP, WPA pre-shared key, an attacker has to capture the four-way EPOL handshake. In order to speed this process up, attackers will usually send that same deauthentication packet to the network as if they were attacking a web encrypted network. Um, unlike, however, attacks against web, the deauthentication will probably only occur for a very short period of time. Um, this is because an attacker only needs to grab one single instance of the four-way handshake to successfully crack a WPA passphrase. What you will see during this time frame is you'll have the deauthentication and then you're going to have the uh, EAPOL handshakes taking place as the clients re-authenticate to the network. Um, in the protocol version, uh, protocol frame, you will actually see the EAPOL, and in the type, it will be listed as 802.1x authentication. Um, also, unlike web attacks, one problem that you have with responding to WPA attacks is that by the time you take action, it's usually too late. Um, the attacker, as I said, only needs that one instance of the four-way handshake. After he has got that, he is then able to crack your passphrase offline, and you will not see any more traffic from the attacker until such time as he's ready to insert himself into your wireless network. Um, the way that you can respond to these attacks is that if your WPA passphrase is more than 20, 21 characters, chances are that no action is necessary. The reason I say chances are is because still if you are in a situation where you are using a dictionary word, in other words, you are not using a combination of uppercase and lowercase characters, numbers, special characters, words that would not easily be identified and, and used in a dictionary, uh, you still do run the risk of someone brute forcing the network. If, on the other hand, your uh, passphrase is shorter than 21 characters, you need to immediately change the passphrase to one that is longer than 21 characters, as well as incorporating a combination of the um, different special characters, etc., that will make for any strong password. Another method that you can do is to get rid of WPA in pre-shared key mode and use WPA with radius or some other form of secondary authentication. Preferably some form of two-factor authentication. We also want to talk now about man-in-the-middle attacks. Um, in a nutshell, a man-in-the-middle attack is an attempt by an attacker to have clients authenticate to an access point that is not a legitimate access point. Um, you'll sometimes also hear these referred to as evil twin attacks. Um, basically, the attacker's goal is to capture any clear text traffic uh, in order to glean usernames, passwords, or any other sensitive information that may be uh, traversing your network. 
there are two main types of man-in-the-middle attacks that you'll see. One is a client-based man-in-the-middle attack. In this type of attack, an attacker will use a client card configured in host AP mode or in some cases in um, an ad hoc or peer-to-peer -peer mode to basically act as an access point and try and trick your users into authenticating to it instead of to the legitimate access point. Another way is to use a client card that's configured in host AP mode to actually spoof the legitimate access point. Uh, this is actually similar to the second, which is an access point-based man-in-the-middle attack. In this type of attack, uh, an attack will use a, an actual access point with uh, either custom firmware or a custom configuration to spoof a legitimate access point. This is uh, something that's a little bit more recent, and we're actually starting now to have to deal with this because it is much more difficult to, number one, identify, and number two, to respond to. Um, one common identifier that you'll find with man-in-the-middle attacks, especially those that are being performed by attackers with little skill, is uh, the uh, sending of common traffic, actual data packets, uh, followed quickly by beacon frames with the new SSID, which is the SSID of your network or their target network. Um, here you can actually see this. This is with a client-based card. You have the MAC address of the client card is noted, and you have destination, which is actually the legitimate access point, uh, and you just have regular IEEE 802 data packets. Immediately after that, you see that the same MAC address is now doing a broadcast of the SSID MITM. You can also note that it is a malformed packet when that's when that's done. Um, prior to an access point, and also in many cases uh, client card-based man-in-the-middle attacks, you're going to actually notice two distinct access points. Um, here we have one access point that's on the top and the second one that's immediately underneath it. This attack is actually based on a methodology that was developed this past July by a Canadian hacker who goes by the handle of RenderMan. Um, in your slides, there is a, uh, a link to information on how to deploy this attack. It's primarily based, in this case, on uh, a Linksys router. However, it is possible to take the same methodology and uh, deploy it across multiple uh, vendors. Um, as you can see, where we initially had two distinct access points that we're speaking, we now only have one source MAC address. Um, in this particular frame, this is from the legitimate access point that really does contain this MAC address. Uh, if you look at the 
traffic that's can be analyzed here, there's really nothing that would seem out of place because it is the legitimate traffic. This next frame is from the spoof AP. And as you can see, it looks virtually identical to the traffic that is generated by the uh, legitimate access point. Um, one of the things to note here is the traffic that you see is normal traffic for an access point. At this point, you have to start to ask yourself the question, is there a way to determine that a man in the middle attack, particularly one of this type that's access point based, uh, can be de uh, determined to have taken place. Um, one thing to note is that if you scroll back through the packet capture, when the actual attack happened and your clients were then forced to authenticate to the man in the middle, you were actually able to notice that all of your access or all of your clients or as many that were in range of the man in the middle were actually forced to do a DHCP discover if you're using DHCP on your network, as well as generate that art packet to try and reestablish its connection to the network. Um, at this point, they're actually authenticating not to your network, but to the network of the uh, spoofed or man-in-the-middle access point. At this point, if you were to go through your logs for either your wireless network or uh, your DHCP server, anything anywhere where you're actually logging your network activity, uh, you should actually start to see your clients dropping off. Um, unfortunately, that's probably not going to do enough for you because of the nature of wireless networks and the fact that they're not the most stable networks in the world. You'll actually start to notice clients dropping off on a regular basis and then quickly reassociating. Um, because of this, what you generally have to do is actually correlate your logs with the logs from your uh, wireless intrusion detection system or with the logs from, uh, uh, not the logs, but with your packet capture analysis and your packet capture dumps if you're running a sniffer on your network at all times. One of the more disheartening things about this type of attack is regardless of whether it's a client-based attack or a access point-based attack, most wireless intrusion detection systems are not able to identify this type of behavior. Because of this, it's incumbent upon wireless administrators to be vigilant in actually noticing this type of attack, and that can be a very daunting task. Fortunately, many of the correlation functions can be scripted with whatever scripting language you choose to use. Um, kind of a story about this. About uh, eight months ago, I was at a conference in the U.S. where uh, both of the two primary wireless IDS vendors in the United States, Air Magnet and Air Defense, were also set up there to uh, basically try and convince folks to buy their products.
another vendor had set up a wireless network, the goal of which was to basically show how secure their wireless network, their wireless products were. They had uh, built some custom hardware that they had, uh, although proprietary, had actually built security in from the ground up, and they wanted to try and sell these products. I um, went to th this company, and I asked them if they would mind if I tried to basically do one of these uh, access point, or I'm sorry, client card based uh, man in the middle attacks against their network and basically see which one of the wireless IDS vendors would discover that activity first. After a very short period of time, I was able to successfully accomplish the man-in-the-middle attack against their network just using um, my laptop and a client card. Uh, what was unfortunate was that neither of the wireless IDS vendors were able to actually dis determine that this attack had taken place. I, it got to the point where it, I actually went to the vendors and described the attack step for step what I had done uh, and allowed them the opportunity to go back through their capture logs and take a look at the same type of activity that we, we talked about here today. They were able to find that activity in their logs, but when they went to their signature base for their IDS product, they realized that there was no signature on either product that would actually pick this up. I offered to basically write signatures for both companies free of charge. Uh, both companies seemed to be very enthusiastic about this. However, Eight months later, they still have not recontacted me about doing this. Um, so, about a week ago, I decided to get copies of the products and try the attack again to see if it was going to be successful or if they were going to actually notice it and respond to it. And still, eight months later, we find that that same type of activity is not uh, discovered by these two particular wireless IDSs. If anyone knows of a wireless IDS product that actually does uh, discover this type of activity, I would be interested to know. Go ahead. That's actually the very next, it's in my notes. That was actually the very next thing I was going to say. Um, Aruba Networks has developed a wireless access point, IDS, firewall, whole all-in-one solution to um, basically not only identify that an attack is taking place, but to respond to it without um, any interaction or with limited interaction from the administrator. Uh, their product in particular, and I'm, I'm not, theirs is the only one that I'm actually aware of, does uh, do a very, it's very effective against not only man-in-the-middle attacks, but basically every attack that, that we've talked about so far today. Response. Like I said, real-time response to man-in-the-middle attacks is difficult. Um, because of this, preventative measures should be put in place prior to a man-in-the-middle attack commencing. What are some of those 
preventative measures. Number one, always require authentication to the network over an encrypted channel. The reason I say encrypted channel is that uh, what you find a lot of the times is that networks are deployed basically, wireless networks are deployed basically wide open so that anyone can authenticate to the access point. However, the only place that they can quote unquote go from there is to a, an authentication device. If an attacker is sniffing that authentication and it is not encrypted, the attacker can then come right behind and actually make a connection or spoof the connection that the attacker just did. Um, use two-factor authentication. The scenario that I just mentioned basically would be rendered obsolete by the use of two-factor authentication. If uh, you have a token-based system, RSA Secure ID, whatever the case may be, um, that token is only going to be valid for one instance of authentication if an attacker is even able to capture it when he comes back behind you to try and re-authenticate is no longer going to be a valid uh, method to authenticate to the network. Um, you should also treat the WLAN as a DMZ host with no network privileges um, unless there is some sort of authentication. What you find, companies now and organizations are actually starting to go to this. However, uh, they're still not requiring any form of uh, authentication or encryption in order to gain access to that one piece of the network. That may not seem like such a big deal because of the fact that they're requiring some form of two-factor authentication or they're requiring, uh, you know, authentication over an encrypted channel. The problem with that is, as you know, generally the machine that is connecting to a wireless network is going to be a, a user's laptop. Um, in the United States, I know that this is common. I, I'm not sure if it's the same here in Japan, but I would imagine that it's probably relatively universal. Laptops have a tendency to fall under the radar of most network administrators. They aren't maintained uh, as well as the desktop systems. The reason for that is pretty obvious. You can have some form of um, network management tool that basically does all of your upkeep, your patch management, and uh, everything, your configuration management at night when the users aren't there to desktops. However, if a user takes his laptop home for the evening, there's no way that your, uh, that your patch management or your configuration management tool is going to be able to make those changes. Because of this, what you find a lot of the times is that the laptop computers uh, that are authenticating to these wireless networks are at a less than optimal state of patch management and often have multiple vulnerabilities associated with them. Additionally, when this particular model is utilized, you'll find that there is generally no intrusion detection present on the wireless network. Because of this, an attacker can basically disregard the wireless network as his initial 
uh, point of entry and rather make an initial association with the access point as would be allowed and then focus his attacks on those specific client computers. What I've done repeatedly with this particular model is to actually compromise one of the hosts uh, if there is antivirus at all enabled or any type of uh, host firewalling or host intrusion detection, essentially shut it down on the client system and then, allow, then insert a keystroke logger or basically any other form of malware that I want that is going to allow me to then come back to the system either be it some form of Trojan program uh, backdoor that's allowing me to establish a shell once the system is actually authenticated to the actual network or uh, a keystroke logger. If you're, they're not using a two-factor form, form of authentication, but are rather just using um, some form of authentication over an encrypted channel, I may not be able to sniff that traffic when I'm sitting on, that, on their wireless segment. However, if I capture those keystrokes on the client machine, then I just have to wait for him to go away and then I can essentially assume the role of that client machine. I can uh, spoof the MAC address, as I mentioned, is very easy to do, and then make an authentication to the network that, in that manner. Basically, at this point, whatever the uh, attacker's um, Whatever the attacker's imagination leads him to is the limit of what he can do to attack that particular host. Uh, again, we mentioned it, this is actually where it's at in the slides. Um, Aruba Networks, their solution is very, very effective at responding to this type of activity. Um, for anyone who was at the DEF CON conference this past summer in Las Vegas, uh, we had deployed the Aruba Networks access points and our network there is one of the most attacked networks I've ever seen. Uh, the problem with that is that it, in the past, had caused a lot of problems, not for the administrators as much as for the users. Because of the attacks taking place, users were unable to access the network and it was not reliably up. With the Aruba solution, we actually were able to keep the network up basically the entire con and never had an instance where we were uh, unable to successfully fend off the attacks. Um, and that brings us to the last point, which is to utilize um, wireless network equipment that actively responds to these type of attacks. The drawback there is obviously the cost. Um, because of the nature of wireless and the fact that you can pick up wireless equipment for very small amounts of money, um, a lot of times when networks uh, or when organizations are deploying wireless networks, they take a look at a cheap solution rather than a secure solution and figure, well, we've got other authentication mechanisms in place. Um, the solutions that are going to be more secure are obviously going to have a, a price tag associated with them. Um, in conclusion, 
Wireless attacks have evolved significantly over the years. What was once a very difficult process that could only be accomplished by a certain few individuals who had taken the time to develop their own code and develop their own tools to do it, quickly evolved into something that anybody with an internet connection and a wireless card could do. They just needed to download a tool, basically plug it into their system and go. Even some of the more uh, quote-unquote difficult tools to use, which four years ago, even a tool like Kismet, which is a, a passive scanner, passive sniffer for wireless networks, was so difficult to actually configure for most users that they went with an active uh, or Windows-based solution instead so that they didn't have to go through the hassles of recompiling their kernel or actually trying to find a, a compiler that had the correct options and correct uh, libraries. Um, as these attacks have evolved, luckily, the tools that are available to administrators to respond to these attacks have evolved. Now, basically anyone with a, a, an Intel-based laptop can get these tools with zero knowledge whatsoever. There are dozens of um, bootable CD distributions out there that an attacker can download that basically requires zero skill on his part. All he has to do is throw it in the CD-ROM drive and hit the power button. When it boots up, it will have already detected his hardware, configured everything appropriately, and then in a easy point-and-click menu, gives him access to the tools that are very effective for an attacker. Um, because of this, luckily, you now find that there are more advanced products, be it wireless intrusion detection systems uh, or hardware-based solutions for uh, ground-up basically encrypting all of your traffic and working at the wireless firewall and IDS into a single device. Um, the most important thing, though, to actually understand here is that regardless of the solution that your organization chooses, no tool is going to be a substitute for well-trained, vigilant administrators. One of the most disheartening things that I see time and time again is an organization will spend countless amounts of money, countless uh, dollars on hardware and software-based solutions, but at the same time, they hire someone at a very low salary who does not have the skills to actually monitor and understand what they're seeing with these solutions. While their hardware and software-based solution was great, they've essentially rendered it ineffective by the inability of the administrators to actually understand what they're seeing. Because of this, it's incumbent upon each of us to make sure that we understand what we're seeing. We understand the attacks that are out there in the wild. Probably by the time I get home from Japan, there will be both new uh, instances of old attacks as well as completely different attacks against wireless networks. So we, it's important that we continue to take a look at what is out there and understand not only um, 
that the attack is there, but how we can identify it and how we can understand it, it's probably going to require us to actually find the tools and, and actually utilize the tools in a controlled environment to do the types of packet captures that we took a look at here and see what are we going to find when a real attacker is doing this so that we can be prepared. Basically, that's the end of the presentation. If you have any questions, uh, glad to answer them. Also, the two email addresses that you can uh, contact me at directly if you have questions that you'd rather ask that way are there as well as in your slides. And I'd like to thank everyone for coming. Yes, sir. Sir, could I have you step up to one of the microphones, please, so that everyone can hear the question? The uh, difference between the WPA and WPA2. Okay. WPA was the initial implementation of, of WPA, WPA1. Um, that was primarily based on uh, the Temporal Key Integrity Protocol, or KeyKip. Um, what has happened since then is because of problems with WPA, PSK, and some of the other implementations of WPA, uh, and the fact that initially the design was for uh, WPA or for WPA to include um, AES or Advanced uh, Encryption Standard, um, the WPA2 algorithm has started now recently with, particularly with some of the 802.11i equipment that's starting to come out to gain a little bit more. Um, Acceptability. You you will find that some that it's backwards compatible with a lot of your older equipment, and in some cases you can uh, get firmware updates to uh, take your current equipment from a WPA1 solution to a WPA2 solution. WPA2 is going to, especially if uh, deployed properly, is going to be much more difficult. I, I won't say impossible because nothing's impossible to crack, but it's certainly beyond the ability of any script kitty or uh, any known attack that's out there, attack vector that's out there right now to crack an AES encryption. Oh, no. When, when doing red teaming, is is a current is it currently popular to to check and see up front if there's a wireless way in because it may be an easy vector for the red team? Yes. Um, one of the things when we do a red team or an unannounced penetration test is to, uh, the first thing we try and do is actually go out to the site, uh, do a war drive and see if we can identify any wireless networks and then if there is a, a way to exploit those and get in, it's going to be, in most cases, it's going to be an easier way to get into the network than trying to go through uh, a DMZ where they have their public web server or something of that nature that's going to be heavily monitored. The biggest problem that you find with red teaming wireless networks is you generally have a 
very specific contract that allows you to uh, to perform red team operations against a specific organization. Unfortunately, most organizations aren't isolated. They're in the middle of a business complex. They're in the middle of uh, you know 50 or 60 other organizations that have also deployed wireless. If they've been nice enough to actually put the SSID as their company's name, sure, that makes it easy to identify. Unfortunately, when you actually sit down and you've got uh, a Kismet dump that has 70 wireless networks in it and not, they've all been obfuscated and you can't figure out which one's your clients, a lot of times what you end up having to do is either a lot of research to try and figure out if there's some sort of correlation between the different names of the SSIDs and your target organization or um, basically leave, the, leave that as a non-usable vector because unlike a real attacker who would simply compromise each one of those networks until he found who his target was in a red team environment, we're, we're not able to do that. Um, one thing to, to note, that, because that is a good point, um, if you do deploy a wireless network while uh, you know obfuscation of your SSID is not going to do a whole lot for you from a keeping an attacker out perspective, it definitely does make their job a little bit more difficult. Um, one of the things that I've had to do in the past is to actually spend almost a week and a half, two weeks researching a specific company and every bit of information that, about them on the web until I actually found that the SSID that they were using wasn't um, their company name, but it was actually the suite number of the conference room in their facility, which is where the access point was located. Um, just actually more out of luck than anything else, we stumbled across a link uh, for something on, on the internet that actually had that conference room noted and we were able to make the correlation. Um, one thing that I would suggest on red teaming wireless is that when you do have that situation that you actually verify with your white cell the uh, or your trusted agent, whoever is on the, in the inside that is working with you to uh, ensure that, that, actually, that you have correctly identified that wireless network as theirs because even though it may seem like theirs, you still could be attacking somebody else's network. えっと、先ほどあの、アルバーネットワークスがあの、まあ、インザミドル攻撃に対して、あの、効果的な防御を行えるっていうのを話があったと思うんですけれども、あの、他のメーカーについても、あの、そういうことができるかっていうのを調査
requires a, a significant investment, A, in the research and development side of things, and that is going to be passed on to the end user. One of the reasons that wireless has been able to grow the way it has is because even when it was in its infancy, wireless equipment was relatively cheap. Um, if vendors are uh, spending the time to develop all these security solutions and put them in place, they're going to end up having to pass that on to the consumer, and then they're going to see their sales drop and from a business standpoint I can even understand to a degree that it doesn't make sense to um, spend that kind of money knowing that you're going to lose a large portion of your customer base uh, one of the unfortunate truths when dealing uh, with consumers is that usually convenience is more important to them than security. That's because they don't understand the security risks that are associated with uh, any kind of new technology that they're deploying. Did that answer your question? Okay. Thank you very much for coming. Um, I'll be at the reception tonight if anyone has any questions and just wants to talk to me one-on-one. -on -one. More than happy to talk about it with you. I love this stuff. I live it every day, and it's, uh, it's a great place to be. Thank you very much. Uh, I'd also like to thank